0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses with his latest on Russia's war on Ukraine and Byron Callan of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, Joining us is former Pentagon Comptroller Bob Hale, the chairman of the Congressionally Mandated Commission to Reform the Defense Department's Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Execution System. The expert panel issued its 200-page interim report last week that includes 10 potential recommendations on which they are seeking comment, 13 more narrowly focused recommended actions, While the final report isn't due until March, Deputy Defense Secretary Kath Hicks has already directed the Pentagon to adopt the recommendations. Bob, welcome back. Been too long and congratulations on the report. I'm glad to be here, Vaco. And a quick word from our sponsor, HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors in the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Very important piece of work that uh, you, uh, your vice chairman Ellen Lord, the former uh, assistant secretary, uh, uh, undersecretary of defense for acquisition and sustainment, as well as 14 of your uh, commissioners put together. You guys interviewed, you know, more than 500. Uh, people who've been victims of the budget process, perpetrators or, or bystanders. Um, you guys put together a 200-page interim uh, report and includes uh, 10 uh, potential uh, recommendations on which you're seeking comment and another 13 more narrowly uh, defined actions uh, that uh, the Deputy Defense Secretary, Kath Hicks, has already directed the department to adopt. Your final report's going to be out in March. Um, I wanted to ask you you know, There's a universal appreciation for what you guys did and, and what it is uh, you're recommending. Some of them are broad brush things, how to streamline the process, bundle items together, for example, in terms of line items, um, and, and some are very granular internal uh, mechanical functions. Walk us through the core recommendations of the overhaul you're proposing and how they would actually improve outcomes meaningfully.
1: Well, uh, Vago, we formulated five goals uh, that, uh, for improving PPBE, um, and and we did that because we wanted to ensure what the legislation told us that they wanted a comprehensive review of the budgeting system, the PPBE system, um, and 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 I think they. Uh, they convey the, the most important things uh, that we're trying to do. One of them, for example, is can we change PPE so it does a better job of fostering innovation and also uh, helping the, uh, the budget system respond quickly to changes in requirements. We call that the innovation and adaptability and, and there, I won't go through them in detail, but we looked at changes to the reprogramming process, uh, which is a process Congress uh, allows DOD to use to move money around in the year of execution. Uh, the uh, availability of appropriations, particularly the, the uh, well-known use-it-or-lose-it problem, uh, where you have to obligate all the uh, money uh, in the uh, year of appropriation in the operating accounts, and that uh, leads to a year-end spending spree, and some ways to try to mitigate problems of continuing resolution. So Uh, those are a few of the innovation and adaptability ones. We also had some in terms of aligning budgets to strategy, but let me stop and uh, ask if I'm um, moving in the direction you think is helpful in terms of answering that question. Uh,
0: Absolutely. Um, You know, One of the things you guys talked about is how to streamline this process, for example, bundling uh, line items, uh, as well as increasing communication with lawmakers, right? I mean, as opposed to making sort of one big data dump to, to make um, a greater automation of the system. Talk to us about some of the mechanical elements to try to help uh, everybody in this uh, process, because obviously industry is looking to you for the signals, members are looking at whatever it is you guys are trying to do in as real-time a fashion. And it's, a you know, I mean, with, with tens of thousands uh, of line items, it, it is a very, very challenging document, you know, and then you have the internal coordination that goes into it. What are, what are some of the mechanical elements of this? That you think would be sort of the easiest lifts to, to, to give you the best, uh, you know, backend outcomes.
1: Well, two of our two of our broad goals we think of as enablers, and one of them you're referring. Now, can we do a better job of of, uh, commu- of systems uh, that uh, both help uh, handle PPV data internally to DOD, but also communicate better to the Congress? So, for example, uh, one of our recommendations is to Establish enclaves or networks uh, that help communicating uh, help communicating budget data between DoD and uh, um, and and Congress. Right now, a lot of the data is is sent electronically, but it's often PDF files and right. uh, briefings. They're not sortable. They're not searchable. They can't be easily updated. We need a more modern system of networks uh, that allows DOD and Congress to communicate. And, and I might add, DOD is working on this issue. We commend that and urge them to uh, to make it work. The other one uh, that you mentioned is, uh, one of our goals dealt with improving relationships between DOD and Congress on PPBE related issues. So, um, I've worked for years with Congress to try to meet financial needs of the department. And generally, I think DOD and Congress uh, do, a, do a pretty good job and, and, and meet the key requirements. But our system is set up with separation of powers that inherently uh, creates uh, uh, some schisms between uh, Congress and, and DOD. And we're looking for ways to improve them. So for example, um, we recommended uh, an action that we think could start now for DOD to provide a mid-year update briefing to the Congress. We heard from congressional staff that get an avalanche of data uh, when the budget is submitted and uh, typically in a normal year that occurs in early February. But after that, the data that gets episodic, uh, sometimes it's late uh, and sometimes it isn't consistent with the data they already received. So we think a mid-year update uh, conducted uh, led by the comptroller and and senior service reps would provide a forum for discussion uh, between DOD and Congress on both execution issues, what's going on in the year of execution, but also the debate that Congress is having over the the budget proposal itself. So those are two examples of... uh, ways we hope we can improve relations between DoD and, uh, and Congress and also use systems uh, to uh, help uh, modernize this uh, PVB process.
0: Um, let me ask you sort of what's Uh, Next. Uh, And uh, the role of members, you guys, the final report doesn't get issued until uh, March. You have those 10 uh, potential recommendations that you're making that you want to get feedback on as sort of a public commentary period, even though you guys have done an enormous amount of homework on this. Um, Obviously, this was launched by the Senate. Um, and so, you know, but there was also worry on the part of appropriators about whether or not they're going to be able to maintain, uh, the enormous amounts of influence they have over the process. What's, what's next in the sort of, um, validation of those 10 recommendations, the refinement of them, and then more importantly, Bob, the selling of them, uh, mm-hmm. to, to members and staff, um, who like. who who like authority and flexibility, which may collide sometimes with what the department wants to do?
1: Our our process will be uh, to uh, hear from our stakeholders. and, And there's some further research and assessment on those 10. And there may be Uh, A few additional recommendations uh, that that we have that didn't make their way into the interim report, and decide which of those are going to end up uh, in the final report. But we are very mindful of the need to uh, sell our ideas not just to Congress but to DoD. Uh, We were very encouraged by uh, Deputy Secretary Hicks' statement, but we know that we need to keep both sides involved and informed. And we've been doing that for the last year and a half. We met within the first couple of months with all four of the defense committees. We've had a couple of sets of meetings with all four of them, including a pre-brief on this interim report. Similarly, for uh, uh, senior um, uh, members at DOD, we want to keep talking to them and have them talk to us in hopes that the recommendations that we come up with in March will be things, uh, many of which uh, they, they can accept. Uh, and, and we have six months after our final report is issued in March before we uh, go away, uh, and so uh, we'll keep uh, at least uh, some staff on board and some commissioners involved in, in trying to help DOD and Congress understand why uh, at least the commission feels uh, these uh, changes are important and could improve PVPE. So a lot ahead of us. Probably the hardest work is still ahead of us. Um, but we're excited that we've gotten this far and uh, and, and look forward to finishing out in March with the final report.
0: Um, you, you guys have worked uh, very hard. Um obviously, to uh, produce this uh, document, and it's very thoughtful. But there are those who look at this and say uh, um, that it doesn't go far enough. Uh, you know, as uh, my producer Chris Cervello said on uh, Friday's roundtable, you know, it, it, it may be it shrinks the tumor, but it doesn't really get rid of the tumor. You're somebody who has long argued that, look, the system can work and actually work really well uh, in the hands of experienced people who know how to use it, uh, but it, that reform is, is absolutely necessary and you, you, have, you, you and the team have produced something that's meaningful in a reform. How do you respond to those people who say that we should have gone farther in this endeavor?
1: Well, we're not done, Vago, and we may consider some um, uh, additional far-reaching recommendations. But we did look at the direction of... Uh, of the Congress at at systems in non-DOD agencies that they use to handle their budgets. We looked at systems in uh, three of our partner nations, and we're looking at several more. We looked at the systems in China and Russia um, uh, with the help uh, of the uh, Iran Corporation, which did this research for us. And frankly, I don't think anything stood out as, uh, hey, here's a whole different approach uh, to defense budget making, and we should throw out PPBE uh, and and go to an entirely new approach. Right. Uh, so we have uh, taken what I, I think is the right approach for the commission, and that is look for ways to make what we've got, which already has some strengths, and we don't want to lose those, make it better. Um, and... Uh, when I first started, uh, Vago, I have to say, when I first heard of this commission, my, my thought was, well, gee, you know, a process commission, that's not going to uh, process alone isn't going to solve the, the major budget problems facing the department. Uh, so I kind of wondered about it. But after a year and a half of uh, listening and learning, I have really come to the conclusion that this uh, process can be improved, uh, and uh, one, it's got some strengths and we want to keep them, and I think we do in this interim report, but we can make it better, uh, particularly with regard to things like innovation, uh, adaptability, and we haven't talked about it much, but linking uh, budgets to strategy. Uh, Those are areas where uh, we focused and where we have some reasonably far-reaching recommendations. So, yes, we, uh, we, we are not heading toward suggesting an entirely new system, but I think we're headed toward take the best of what we've got and make it better.
0: Um, Let me ask you about that linkage, uh, right? uh, In between strategy and outcomes, I don't want to necessarily bring in uh, the cost assessment and program evaluation element of this. That's obviously become uh, a bit of a lightning rod and a target. Um, The organization has always fostered um, a little frustration because they're the ones that tell you that you're you know, precious idea may not be as perfectly formed, uh, nor as logical, nor as empirically necessary as you might argue budgetarily. What's the best way without necessarily getting into that argument? I mean, you, b- both you and, and uh, Vice uh, Chairman Lord have said the same thing, which is if you got rid of the office, you still need that function uh, somewhere in, in the department. Ultimately, what's the way, Bob, to make more concrete the linkage between strategy and outcome budgetarily?
1: Well, let me separate these two, but, but since you raised CAPE, can I, I'd like to respond briefly. Of course. To it. Uh, the commission decided uh, not to take a stand between the House and the Senate, which I think was probably appropriate uh, decision for us. But um, we, we have said in this interim report that we believe both CAPE and the Undersecretary of Comptroller, particularly their program budget group, have provided strong support to PPBE. And with regard to CAPE, um, the PBB absolutely needs the capabilities that uh, Cape provides. They lead the programming process. They provide analysis uh, throughout the uh, PPBE process, which is important to its success. So uh, Congress may decide they want to do it a different way, but we absolutely need those functions, uh, and and without them, uh, I think PPBE would just not not work effectively. So. Um, uh, that that's uh, kind of the commission's uh, attitude on on the Cape issue, and we're watching carefully to see uh, where Congress ends up. Um, turning to the strategy, the budget. This has been a long-standing concern, um, and uh, on a part of many critics of PPBE, uh, and and there are concerns. There are reasons for concern. For example, the document the. Uh, the major document that guides the programming and budgeting process called the defense planning guidance has some problems. It's often been late. uh, So it's gotten there after the services completed most of their programming work, which clearly makes it less useful. Um, And it doesn't always um, uh, address some of the hard issues. Uh, For example, where the services could take risks by uh, funding less Uh, in certain types of programs in order to fund uh, and and pay for new ideas. So we're looking at at strengthening the defense planning guidance, and so is the department. They're working hard on this, and incidentally, I want to give them credit. Uh, They issued the defense planning guidance in February uh, of this year, which is probably timely, is timely, for the uh, service programming efforts. Um, And uh, they've established an analysis working group to try to provide more analysis so that the uh, uh, DPG uh, can make some of these hard decisions. Uh, But the commission recognizes that this is a start uh, and, and we commend it and hope that they will continue to try to make this a stronger document
0: and a stronger planning process. There are a lot of people who express frustration that the process itself is uh, a pr- a problematic, right? That people spend uh, tens of thousands of hours uh, preparing for budget decisions. It goes in and out uh, you know, to, to sort of build a case. And at the last minute, uh, something, you know, th- there's a rescission, funding is cut and it, it derails uh, the, the whole, uh, the, the whole uh, process. Is, is there something we can mechanically do to uh, give better warning, foresight, and avoid the churn that goes with it? Because at one point during the Obama administration at the height of you know the Budget Control Act, you guys were building sort of four different budget sets simultaneously. And, and there was a lot of manpower that, that goes into doing that. Are, are there things we can do, Bob, that give you sort of better outcomes, more predictable outcomes, and less, less churn in the system?
1: Well, uh, Vaga, we definitely need more stability uh, in this system. I think the problems that lead to the instability really go well beyond the purview of this commission and some of the overall political disagreements uh, that that we have in the country that are creating them. Um, we did look at some ways to try to mitigate uh, some of that instability, uh, particularly uh, the uh, mitigate some of the adverse effects of continuing resolutions, uh, but it would greatly help if, if we had a, a more stable uh, process where an agreement was reached about funding levels um, a year or so in advance so we could do a good job of planning. Without that, I'd still say that the process uh, does think through a lot of alternatives, and when you find yourself, as I did when I was comptroller, having to make quick decisions, you can often go back to some of that debate and say, okay, here are some options we looked at, and at least we have that that a basis for making decisions. And, and uh, we may have to pick a different one because uh, the world has changed, but at least we've done some of the analysis and thought through some of the problems. Um, and and I think that's another strength of the PVV process, that it does help you think through those problems and be prepared uh, for some of the uncertainty.
0: And uh, we've got about 15 seconds left. What is uh, the key to greater future speed uh, in, in your and in the commission's estimation? Well, it's not one thing, Vago, um,
1: but I think some of the innovation and uh, adaptability issues like uh, reprogramming um, um, uh, and and, uh, availability of appropriations that we've talked about, uh, as well as maybe some changes in the color of money issues Um, And, uh, you know, some simplification combining of either RDT and E budget activities or the budget line items that Congress uses to prevail. No one silver bullet uh, that I can think of, but I think there are a number of proposals in our interim report uh, that could help uh, toward providing uh, more innovation and more adaptability.
0: Uh, Bob, thanks so uh, very much uh, for joining us today, and thanks so very much for all your hard work. You're somebody who's uh, uh, a, a comptroller's comptroller and set a high bar, and example for uh, everybody uh, in the job. And, and uh, you know, thank you for leveraging that experience and the experience of all uh, of your vice uh, chairman and, and all 14 commissioners to do what's critically important work. Thanks very, very much. And, and look forward to having you back on uh, again, especially as you guys approach uh, liftoff.
1: Okay, well, thanks for the kind words. And uh, uh, I look forward to talking further with you.
0: And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors are Daily Coverage, HII sponsors are Global Coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors our Strategy Coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors are Command and Control Coverage and GE Aerospace. Sponsors are Air and Naval Coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems, Defense and Space is sponsoring our coverage of the Air Force Association's upcoming Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show. And as it's Monday... Joining us is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for New American Security and part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and unmanned systems. Sam, I hope you had a great weekend and welcome back. Good to be back, Rago. An absolute uh, pleasure. And unfortunately, we're in a bit of a lightning round uh, as we are tight uh, on time. Uh, A very big week. Let's start with uh, the Russian economy and the collapse of the ruble. Is this going to affect Moscow's ability to wage war at all?
2: It's unlikely to affect uh, Russia's ability to wage war. Um, the fact that the ruble is weak um, is not necessarily affecting the, the military industrial sector. It's not necessarily affecting the acquisition and the development of technologies. It may impact regular people downrange. Right now, the Russian economy appears to be holding as recognized by multiple uh Global experts and uh as as recognized by the international community uh, the economy has bent but didn't break and so uh, this may be affecting regular people who are losing money off their salaries but right. uh, overall um there there appears to be limited effect
0: um let me take you to the uh, Ukrainian uh, offensive despite a dated assessment from Washington uh, that says that ukrainians can't succeed it actually appears like they're gaining ground Uh, give us an update on where the fighting is now and uh what the fighting might look like next year when the ukrainians have uh, f-16s in the inventory which they're not going to get unfortunately until sometime early next year
2: well at this point, the fighting is uh, is a very kind of uh, a very complicated, grinding battle, as we have uh, indicated for weeks. Russians uh, built up incredible amount of defenses, and they laid just an absolutely enormous amount of mines, which is making it difficult uh, for Ukrainians to make fast progress. But they have been judicious, and they are attacking in certain areas. They are impacting Russia's rear and logistical capabilities. And they're basically concentrating their strikes on areas where they think the Russians are the weakest. This is not going to be a fast uh, uh, advance, as we have indicated before, but it may actually impact Russian abilities uh, to defend the first line of defense. And so if that first line gets impacted, then the secondary and tertiary lines may also be affected downrange. But it's not clear exactly whether this is going to happen quickly or this will take many more weeks. As far as F-16s are concerned, uh, it is a very important asset in the Ukrainian ability to attack Russian forces. But the F-16s' performance in the war may also be contingent on Russia's strengthening their own uh, electronic warfare and air defense capabilities. Now that the Russians know that Ukrainians may be getting these aircraft, they're going to be ready for that eventuality. Uh, Right, exactly. Every every move uh, has a counter move.
0: Um, Let me ask you uh, about uh, the unmanned uh, strikes that have uh, been happening. Obviously, Russia has been using its long-range aviation to destroy a third of Ukraine's uh, wheat supplies, uh, and it also uh, did a deadly strike on, coincidentally, a Ukrainian drone uh, convention killing seven and injuring 100. The following day, the Ukrainians counterattacked and destroyed a Russian strategic bomber. Talk to us about the capabilities both sides are
2: using to do long-range strike and what's interesting about this exchange. Russians have been using long-range missiles in their attacks against Ukraine. That tactic has not changed, and this tactic is likely to be uh, upheld uh, for uh, for many months. Uh, the attack on Chernihiv was actually conducted by a missile as well, and uh, there's eyewitness videos that basically show the moment of the impact. Uh, Ukrainians have responded in attacking Russia's uh, airfield where. Uh, Tupolev-22 long-range bombers were located. And Russians even acknowledged that this attack may have been carried out by a quadcopter or a small UAV, meaning that the attack may have been launched from inside Russia proper, for example, by Ukrainian special forces or by uh, Russians allied uh, with the Ukrainians. And so this actually demonstrates something that we've discussed earlier, that there is uh, little that sometimes can be done against such attacks by either side even if there's uh, a lot of uh, air defense capabilities stationed around certain cities and locations there's still going to be some kind of damage uh, from such attacks either from direct hits or or from um, missiles and drones that are breaking up when it comes to attacks on the russian territory um there was some uh, lax. Uh, practices at that airfield the aircraft were not covered or protected they were not in shelters they were just standing on a tarmac and then following following similar attacks on russian airfields last year and this year um it's it's kind of amazing that uh, russian practices are taking root in some places where attacks are more prevalent and in other places russians are just doing things as usual this is especially prevalent with for example defending the uh, Russian naval ports in in Crimea and Sevastopol. There's a lot of defenses around naval bases there. But the attack on Novorossiysk, which was conducted just shortly after, uh, featured none of the defenses that are prevalent in the Crimea or or Sevastopol. And so these kind of defensive practices aren't necessarily commonplace. So Ukrainian forces or Ukrainian allies were able to launch um, quadcopter or an FPV drone or a um, short-range aircraft-type drone, and directly impact Russian ability to fight by striking very expensive and very complicated aircraft. Uh, and and something that's
0: important, uh, obviously, in the Russian arsenal. We've got less than a minute left. Uh, talk to us about the Army uh, Expo. You talked uh, last week that it was getting underway. Very important conference. What were the key takeaways from it uh, from your perspective?
2: Well, this is the biggest gathering of uh, Russian military industrial complex. Uh, A lot of products, goods and services were presented. Uh, Russians are claiming that over a million people visited, including many international delegations. This time there were no um, military games uh, held at other countries as in the years past. But at the same time, the focus of the forum was the military technical uh, discussion, set of discussions held between the Ministry of Defense, between its defense enterprises, academics, practitioners, and others. Uh, And this specific uh, military-industrial forum uh, basically brought together, according to the Russian media, almost 15,000 people uh, to discuss robotics, UAVs, use of uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, and other technologies in the war, to discuss the role of artificial intelligence in the war, and many other military technical aspects and of course war being um, sort of the biggest topic at this forum and at the um, expo writ large there were dozens and dozens of different exhibitors showcasing their versions of fpv drones and small quadcopters that have become so popular in this war by both sides so it showcases the ability to manufacture and design it doesn't necessarily showcase the ability to cooperate collaborate, streamline the approaches, and actually mass-scale manufacture the drones for the war effort. And so, in many ways, it's been an expo, basically a showcase of single concepts or um, of uh, potential developments. It it showcased some capabilities that the Russians are already using in Ukraine. And this military technical forum discussions, uh, lots of roundtables, uh, lots of uh, classified and open discussions, basically were held in the shadow of of, of the ukraine war as uh, the military capabilities uh, that have to be applied in this war were discussed in great detail
0: sam thanks very much for joining us really appreciate it look forward to having you back on again soon when we're back thank you and as it's monday joining me now is my good friend byron callan of the independent washington research firm capital alpha partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, I uh, hope you guys had a great weekend and thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago. Uh, we've got a little bit of a briefer segment uh, than normal. Uh, a great note, you talk about China and Russia's economic problems and what they could mean and how we should interpret them. Sam discussed that a little bit uh, in terms of Russia's problems. From your standpoint, what's the thesis?
3: Well, the thesis, I guess it's, you know, is this good or bad for defense is, is the opening comment. Uh, there has been a school of thought. I'll start with China, because that's really the bigger factor right now, um, for at least for US defense spending. You know, this school of thought, uh, there's actually been a book written about it that as China faces uh, economic uh, slowdown, more domestic stress, it could turn to conflict um, to basically galvanize the population, kind of, you know, avoid any domestic unpleasantries. I, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, what I did in my note, we just, you looked at all the wars that have been fought between states. And it's really hard to pick that out as, as a primary motive. Um, you know, could it happen? Maybe. But I wouldn't I wouldn't hang my hat on the notion that China, just because it's facing, you know, high youth unemployment, all these questions about what's going on in its property market you know, a sluggish economy, I mean, they've got demographic problems too, does that automatically mean that they're going <clears> to <throat> turn to military adventurism to solve these problems? Um, you know, that that thesis, I think it, it's very rare to find that um, when I looked at all the wars that have been fought between states, I guess, going back to the late 1800s. Um, and I suppose the other question then is, oh, if their economy is going to be weak, <clears throat> are they going to start seeing um, resource constraints on their defense budget, defense spending? Yeah. Um, you know, no country has bottomless resources. China, like every country, every state is going to have to make trade-offs. And I guess <clears throat> I, you know, I wouldn't see that happening because, right, you know, it, it's kind of like us. It's it's a countercyclical business. You don't want to cut your defense spending or throw people out of the military when um there is uh you know no place for them to go so uh, i i don't think it changes things that much i i wouldn't be surprised if the economic news out of china gets worse <clears throat> in the coming weeks they really do have a very different global uh, a business model uh, if that's a way to put it the way their economy is set up um <clears throat> than than other countries in the g7 um but i i wouldn't necessarily see it as something that boy you know let let's uh, get ready for war in 2024 2025 taking over taiwan is still a pretty tall task i don't think there's high a high probability that this economic weakness is going to automatically mean that the prospects for war over taiwan have increased significantly in 2024 2025 look it's still there it's it's something we have to be aware of i don't think that you know unlike some of these other wars where one side has shown weakness um the uh president's trilateral meeting uh with korea and japan um you know should be something that that, that china takes note of um <clears throat> we certainly haven't wavered in our support of taiwan so you know the idea that this is somehow an easier thing for china to accomplish um no i i I don't. I don't see that correlation of forces changing. Uh, and uh, just very briefly, right? Uh, you also said you don't
0: see economic challenges necessarily changing the way Russia fights this its war either.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, there is some actually a note that I came across uh, military Kenyanism. You know, one of the interesting things is, you know, their GDP is growing, but you know, like a lot of countries at war, it's it's because they're spending more in their military. It's it's really kind of a transfer of resources within the economy. The ruble um, <clears throat> breaking to, you know, 100 uh, to $1 was significant. Now they raised interest rates, you know, they, they have a domestic inflation problem, you know, but I, I wouldn't look at this as somehow, oh, the economy, the, the wheels are about to fall off the economy and all hell is going to break loose in Russia. Right again, might get there someday, you know, but but it just doesn't seem that there's a, a sign of wavering or something so severe that uh, that you know we have to think about a, a truncation in the current conflict in Ukraine because of economic difficulties in Russia.
0: <clears throat> um, let me uh, just ask you quickly uh, before we go uh, to the week ahead, uh, the. US Air Force's Jet Zero uh, uh, contract on a blended wing body aircraft. We talked about it on yesterday's uh, program. Uh, Jet Zero, a small innovative company of ex-Douglas folks who've been working on this for a long time, paired uh, with or teamed, I should say, uh, with the U.S. Air Force, but also Northrop Grumman and uh, RTX and a number of other companies, uh, a real watershed, isn't it?
3: Well, it absolutely is, Vago. You know, and I, I think what's fascinating about it is, you know, if you look at the role in the U.S. military in commercial airliner development, you um, you know the 707 and the kc-135 for example the boeing 747 was basically designed to meet a, a outsized cargo aircraft requirement for the air force so when you see this kind of commitment being made um, i think it's it's both significant for what it could mean for the long-term competitiveness of the u.s aerospace industry i think it's a it's a i wouldn't even call it a shot across the bow i call it a broadside across the bow of companies that that are spending most of their excess cash flow buying back stock and just talking about higher operating margins. You know, it it really does say if you don't take risk here and you're you're unbalanced in your approach to your shareholders, uh, uh, you're unbalanced in the way you're allocating capital, it's all going to your shareholders, you really do risk destroying long-term value in your company. And um, if the Air Force, you know, I, I think properly sees a need, um, to, to remain, um, see an innovative commercial aerospace industry in the United States, you know, if this is something that eventually leads to that, that's, that's fantastic in my view, but it's disruptive. And, um, uh, but I, I really applaud the air force decision on, on pushing this one through. Uh, we've got about
0: 30 seconds. Uh, what
3: should the audience
0: be paying attention to this week?
3: It's really a week on macro factors. Um, you have the BRIC um, meeting in South Africa. You have the um, the meeting in, in Jackson Hole, the Federal Reserve meeting. You know, so I, I'd look for like what are the bigger bigger signals coming out of those meetings. You know, can China really kind of corral um, an offset to the G seven? Uh, what comes out of Jackson Hole? You know, the, there are usually a number of academic papers that are proposed. Um, you know what might that say about global capacity to sustain higher defense spending it's, it's that sort of thing but otherwise it's a pretty quiet week as far as any scheduled events um and defense are concerned
0: and folks should check out the the US China commission uh, hearing uh, that uh, that will be over with by the time many people hear this uh, Absolutely. So that's on the china
3: that's on the uh, chinese economy I, I didn't mention but yes there should be a replay on that hearing and and probably transcripts following around too
0: Byron, thanks very much. Really appreciate it uh, and hope uh, you have uh, a great uh, week. We're going to be taking a week off. So unfortunately, it'll be two weeks before we hear from you again. But thanks so very much. Thank you. Have a great time off.
1: (laughs) Yeah, will do. Thank you.